This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, hello. Welcome to The Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff. Had a lovely week travelling around the state. I'm sure there's a lot of activity across South Australia today with this little bit more warmth around, uh, people getting stuck into harvest. Bali still has a high tariff into China, but there was a glimmer of hope that the relationship between Australia and China could improve. You'll hear what the National Farmers Federation makes of that reporting. It's really encouraging that in the 30 minutes you know, the Prime Minister has had with uh, his counterpart in China, that trade was raised specifically. Um, there's lots that they could and, and can talk about. I'll have more on that. And I'll also have the latest on the industrial action at the ports with a tugboat operator. The outcome could have a big effect on shipping going forward. So more on that soon. But first up today, the Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watt, is currently visiting South Australia. There's been a lot on the cards, including visiting some flood-affected areas, some farming properties and discussion about the wine trade and biosecurity investments. The Minister was... uh, um, his visit, catching up with people, and the main point was to allow him to better understand local conditions and issues. This is my first visit to South Australia since becoming the Agriculture Minister, and I've tried to make an effort to get to every part of the country to pick up on the issues that are affecting different regions and different parts of the sector. And uh, the wine sector is obviously a really important part of the South Australian agricultural economy. Um, So uh, I'll be having two discussions with uh, wine and grape growers uh, over the course of the day. And really, I guess I want to hear firsthand from people what they see as the big challenges for the industry going forward. Um, I'm very conscious that particularly the loss of the China market has had a huge impact uh, on South Australian uh, wineries and grape growers and as it has many around the country and I think there's a lot of interest in the fact that Prime Minister Albanese was able to have that meeting with President Xi and that's a really positive thing and a good step forward to restoring that trade relationship so um, you know there's a range of challenges as I say that the wine industry is facing and we do have some supports in place but I'm keen to hear more from people uh, and there's no better way than doing to do that than uh, hearing firsthand. And what was your analysis of that conversation? Was it purely that, a conversation, or do you think that uh, mutual trust that was damaged will be repaired and then essentially some easing of those trade barriers? Look, I'd certainly hope that over time those trade barriers can come down and Prime Minister Albanese made that clear to President Xi in the meeting that from our point of view, um, for that relationship to be truly restored, it's going to require China removing some of those trade sanctions that it's had in place. Um, They've had a devastating impact on the wine industry here in South Australia uh, as they have on crayfish. Uh, on barley and a range of other products as well. Uh, We've made clear that we're always going to stand up for Australia's national interests and we're not going to sacrifice our values. Um, But it is possible to have disagreements with other countries while conducting a good positive trade relationship and that's what we want to seek to achieve. Are we likely to see some of those tariffs and bans that currently a lot of those industries are experiencing lifted? 
I certainly hope so, um, but I think we need to be realistic that that isn't going to happen overnight. Um, but I, I, I read the comments that President Xi made and they sounded quite positive and respectful towards Australia. So that gives me some hope that we can um, get that relationship functioning again, which would be really beneficial for farmers here in South Australia. Uh, in the meantime, um, we do need to make sure that we're diversifying our markets for our products as well. And that's why our government is investing on in some new markets for wine and other products as well. Uh, because we need to make sure that as that relationship does get rebuilt, we don't put all our eggs in that basket. And opening up new markets is going to be helpful for the industry too. And speaking of investment, last month you made a budget commitment for a fourth round of wine tourism grants to support the wine industry. What do those supports uh, aim to help with? Yeah, well, those grants are particularly for wine cellar doors. And I know from personal experience, you've got some terrific wine cellar doors here in uh, South Australia. I've been to some great ones in the Barossa and the Clare Valley in years gone by. And really, those grants are about supporting those wine cellar doors to keep operating because, you know, it's obviously good for those businesses, but it's such an important driver of tourism in uh, regional areas across South Australia and the country. So those grants will be open for applications by the end of the month, and I'd certainly encourage uh, local wine growers to, uh, to get involved. And obviously, we've all experienced and seen some wild weather across the state at the moment. What does support look like for farmers after the uh, the struggles and the suffering that they've just been through? Yeah, well, that's certainly the other thing that I'm trying to do while I'm in South Australia. I had a briefing this morning, first thing, from the Emergency Management Minister, Joe Sockarch, and the SES and CFS about uh, what they've just seen in terms of those storms, which were really wild. And I've visited some people this morning uh, in the hills who literally had trees crash down on their roofs, and I could see it with my own eyes. And then when you're talking about farmers, I think we're all keeping a very close eye on what's happening in the Murray River as those waters wind their way down. Uh, We've seen the carnage that they've inflicted in other parts of the country and it's starting to happen here in South Australia. So I would certainly expect um, that if we do see severe damage to farmlands, um, then we'd be working with the South Australian government around support for farmers, just as we have done with the New South Wales government, Victoria and Tasmania as well. You're injecting $134 million into the Australian biosecurity system. Where will some of that money go? Yeah, we've uh, really the centrepiece of our budget in October for agriculture. We can hear those birds going by. <laughs> in the beautiful Barossa we're Valley. in the studio, I think. <laughs> no, I think you can hear apparent. that for sure. And the flies, flies explain <laughs> that as well. But, um, yeah, no, biosecurity was the centrepiece of our agriculture budget this year. Uh, I guess, you know, the foot and mouth disease scare that we saw a few months ago with it getting into Indonesia and then into Bali, um, I think was a real wake-up call for everyone in Australia, whether it be farmers or politicians or general members of the community, that we need to take biosecurity seriously. Um, so what we're using that funding for is everything from increasing biosecurity security officers at airports and mail centres so we can pick things up. Um, Another 20 detector dogs in our airports and handlers to be able to get out there and sniff bags as they're coming back in the country. Um, But also... Uh, we're seriously investing in uh, livestock traceability mechanisms. And I just went and saw a, a farm um, just down the road from in around Angerston, uh, which was uh, is already starting to use some of that um, uh, ear tagging for sheep uh, and lambs. And that can really help us trace where animals have been, which would be very helpful to know if we ever were to have an outbreak. Um, just quickly touching upon the issue of FMD, and um, there is still quite a lot of concern from the live export industry around whether Indonesia's claims that they are FMD-free is actually uh, truthful. Do you trust that data from Indonesia? Yeah, look, I think Indonesia 
isn't saying that they're FMD free, but they are saying that they are getting the epidemic uh, under control, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, obviously, we've got to rely on the data that we're receiving from the Indonesian government uh, and take it at face value. But I do know uh, from the discussions I've had with the Indonesian government that they're particularly putting an effort on getting the uh, outbreak under control in Bali, um, given the amount of trade and travel between our two countries, into Bali especially, that's a very high priority. We're continuing to supply vaccines to Indonesia. We had um, uh, another, I think it was 3 million vaccines arrived for foot and mouth disease in Indonesia recently, and they're currently being administered uh, to cattle and other livestock around the country. So we've made very clear to Indonesia that we want to work cooperatively with them to try to get that outbreak under control. And speaking of importing vaccines, on the other side, the CSIRO is also wanting to import live virus of FMD. Um, would you support that move? Look, I think we've got to be um, very careful about importing live virus of any kind. Um, obviously, we want to make sure that that's happening under very controlled circumstances. Um, but but I'm happy to work with the CSIRO and farm groups about what, what would be the best way to look at domestic manufacturing of vaccines going forward. Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watt, speaking with Dimitria Panagiotaris. Speaking about that petition to potentially import live virus after successfully importing lumpy skin disease live virus into Australia. As was mentioned, that CSIRO now wants to import the foot and mouth disease live virus as well. The government research agency um, has made this submission, but the process is complicated, as, as was alluded to, and the checks and balances need to be in place before it can happen. Megan Hughes took a little bit more look at what this would entail. The Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness is a high-security lab in Geelong run by the CSIRO for diagnostics and research into exotic animal diseases. They've been at the front line of the fight to keep lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease out of Australia. Senior Principal Research Scientist Dr Vulna Fussler is involved in the work to create an mRNA vaccine for the diseases. She explained to the Senate Committee why they would need to import live virus. The initial testing for the FMD mRNA vaccine will be done yet ACDP, but it will not involve any live virus. So we will be looking at the serological responses um, against that vaccine. And Senator, maybe if you don't mind me just adding that mRNA is one platform of um, vaccine development. Um, There are other platforms that we could potentially work on as well. And a big limitation for us is the fact that even if we work on platforms and we design something new, Um, The difficulty in doing the full range of testing that you would need to do is limited by the fact that we don't have access to the live virus. So we will have to go elsewhere if we want to test the the vaccine. And the ultimate ultimate test for a vaccine is to, to challenge the animals and see that they are indeed protected. And that is the step that we can't do. Dr. Vulna Fulslub. According to the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, no import permit application has been made. While there are vaccines available for both lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease, mRNA vaccines are considered cheaper and quicker to produce because they're synthetic and don't require animal or microbial products unlike traditional vaccines. 
but bringing in a live virus increases the risk of an outbreak in Australia. FMD in particular is a highly infectious disease with a range of potential transmissions. Dr Chris Parker from DAV explains what would need to happen if an import permit was sought. Currently the importation of foot and mouth disease virus is prohibited without an import permit issued under the Biosecurity Act. Also, if it was to go to ACTP, ACDP in Victoria, my understanding is, is it'd need a permit under a Victorian Act as well, the Livestock Disease Control Act. But obviously before uh, we would issue an import permit, I would anticipate a very similar process to what went on with the importation of live LSD virus into the country would go on. And that would be an assessment of the ACDP facilities to ensure that they meet the absolute highest, most current standards that are around for the importation of and the holding of such a, uh, um, such a virus. Um, I would remind you that there are places in the world where there has been escapes from the facilities. I'm not suggesting that that would occur from ACDP, but of course we would have to ensure that facilities were absolutely top-notch before we'd even contemplate doing something like this. I would anticipate the Minister, like he did last time, would require the Inspector-General of Biosecurity to run a risk assessment over it and run his eyes over the whole process before it was to proceed. But once all that is completed and we have a risk assessment and we're comfortable, we would be comfortable with the facilities at ACDP, and that's an if at the moment, given the age of that facility, we would need to then issue an import permit and the virus could then be imported. There would likely, as there are with LSD, a whole range of conditions on that import permit around the purity, around the way it's kept, about what can be done with it, all those sorts of things. And I would be simply speculating at this time as to what conditions it would come under. But I would just reiterate, there is no proposal at the moment to import FMD virus into Australia. And I certainly, as the area who would be doing the risk assessment, am not aware of anything in that, in, in that realm. That's Dr Chris Parker. Given the volatile nature of trade relationships, importing live virus could have an impact. Nicola Hinder, Acting Deputy Secretary of the Agricultural Trade Group within DAF, says it would need to be approached in a careful and considered way. We would either need to predicate that with a very large communication targeted strategy and campaign to our trading partners to actually explain the basis upon which we were importing the virus. Now, be that for scientific technical assessment purposes, be it for preventative nature, that really wouldn't matter. There will be some trading partners that would automatically jump to the immediate assumption that because Australia has imported the virus, we effectively have the virus and so therefore we're looking for the vaccine. And so sometimes those are the much harder um, perceptions to be able to counteract by communication. Nicola Hinder, Acting Deputy Secretary for the Agricultural Trade Group within DAF, finishing that report by Megan Hughes. So uh, we'll keep an eye on the development of that potential application. It hasn't gone in as was reported there, but there is interest in uh, bringing it in to, to perhaps test it, but obviously a lot of concerns go along with that. So we'll keep following that as we approach 20 past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
A major step in improving relations between Australia and China happened this week when the two leaders met in Bali. Now, it was alluded to by Murray Watts in that story just before, but could this meeting and thawing of relations, could this meeting mean a thawing of relations and therefore help producers of commodities like wine, barley, lobster, export hay and beef that have all been locked out of China to varying degrees due to tariffs over the past few years. Warwick Long spoke with CEO of the National Farmers Federation, Tony Maher, about what this means for Australian agriculture. Oh, look, I think it'll be encouraging, Warwick. I think, you know, China's such a key market for Australian agricultural exports. They take about a quarter of what we produce, about total exports, a uh, quarter of them go to China. So incredibly valuable and important market. And it's really encouraging that two leaders have got together and we hope that it results in a rebuilding and a strengthening of the relationship. Obviously, the, the pictures and the symbolism of the speeches is important, but what do you think a realistic expectation is from a meeting like this about things like exports resuming? Look, I think it was a significant step that the Prime Minister specifically raised trade relations. So, you know, there, there's lots going on in the relationship and around the world, but for the Prime Minister to raise trade relations, you know, specifically on some of the agricultural products, obviously. But having said that, it will obviously take a while. And as long as it all continues to go in the right direction and, you know, we look at strengthening and rebuilding and and enhancing the relationship, I think most farmers will be encouraged by uh, the meeting. With uh, export bans or, or tariffs in place on things like wine, lobster, barley, hay exports and, and restrictions on some beef exporters as well still in place, uh, are those industries hurting? Are there particular industries desperate to see a resumption in trade? Look, I think most industries, Warwick, would you know, look forward to stability in the market. I mean, the, the disruptions that we've seen over the last couple of years have come from a range of areas. The stability and the certainty is what I think people are looking for. So as long as we're moving you know, in a positive di- direction, uh, the conversations are, are constructive and, and positive, that will be the main thing. I think we're, we're so lucky in Australia that you know, Australian farmers produce some of the best food and fibre around the world. So while it takes some time to re-establish and rebuild new markets. We're well placed um, to diverse, continue to diversify and, and put products into markets that you know are paying the right price and for the right conditions and those sorts of things. So yes, China is absolutely critical, but likewise, so is continuing to look at diversifying markets. I guess what I'm trying to establish is how high on the list of importance is things like resuming the China trade in agriculture at the moment? It's very high, and I think, as uh, as I alluded to before, it's really encouraging that in the 30 minutes that, you know the Prime Minister has had with uh, his counterpart in China, that trade was raised specifically. Um, there's lots that they could and, and can talk about. So from a government perspective, from an industry perspective, I think the resumption and the strengthening of the agricultural trade between Australia and China looks to be at you know the, the top of the list, near the top of the list of, of discussions, which I think is really encouraging. What's more important to Australian farmers, an India free trade agreement or a resumption of the China trade for the commodities that are currently locked out? Yeah, that's a really good question, Warwick. I think it'll depend on 
with the risk of sounding like a lawyer, it, it depends. I mean, you, there's there's commodities that uh, like seafood and wine who have been absolutely devastated by some of the restrictions and disruptions in the China market. There'll be other commodities that see India as a you know a huge opportunity as we know it is. You know, a billion people over there growing um, domestic market, uh, their disposable income. So it'll it'll depend a little bit. Um, but I would say the the more certainty, the more stability that we can have in global trade, the better for Australian farmers. We've had this meeting. What do you hope happens from here? Well, I think there has been, so, you know, this meeting, the meetings that, or discussions that uh, Foreign Minister Wong have had, I think what we'd like to see is a continuation. So it, it's not going to be solved. The, you know, the relationship isn't going to be totally repaired after one 32-minute meeting. So what we'd look to see is more discussions, more conversations, more engagement between the two countries. Obviously, industry has been talking to um, counterparts in, in China for a long time continues to. So that'll continue to build with, you know, the encouraging signs from the two leaders. So I do see that it's um, a bit of a pathway, a bit of a journey. It's not going to be solved overnight, but it's certainly an encouraging step. CEO of the National Farmers Federation, Tony Ma, speaking with Warwick Long there now. Uh, we'll have more to come on the Country Hour in the next half hour, including a look at a federal review of the immigration system that could have wide-ranging implications for agriculture. We'll have more on that soon. But to weather now as it warms up, Simon Timke from the Bureau of Meteorology has the latest. It's a little bit warmer. I still wouldn't call it like normal November weather, but it's, it's, it's warming up. It still feels a little bit on the cool side for this time of year, doesn't it, Cassie? But as you say, warmer than we've had uh, earlier in the week. So I guess uh, if you're looking out for a bit of warmer weather, then uh, then you'll take this. Um, as, as far as uh, sunshine goes, plenty of it around today too. Sort of most of the uh, central and eastern parts of the state seeing plenty of sunshine today. Although we have seen a bit of cloud develop over the southeast this morning. Um, further west, uh, a, a bit of high cloud extending across the parts uh, sort of west of about uh, Sejuna uh, ahead of a, a cold front that's moving across the south of uh, Western Australia today uh, and that cold front will reach the far west of SA tomorrow. So we'll see that um, some showers and thunderstorms develop out of the cloud uh, ahead of that today. We're just starting to see a couple of strikes a little bit closer to, to our border with Western Australia. So over the the far west of the state today, west of about Sejuna, uh, I think we'll see um, some showers and, and isolated thunderstorms develop during the afternoon. Some of those storms could be severe with a, a, a chance of some damaging winds, locally heavy rainfall, possibly some large hail as well. On Friday, that weather moving slowly eastwards, uh, uh, so likely to see those um, potentially severe storms move over parts a little bit further east as well, so Air Peninsula, West Coast District, Northwest Pastoral, and maybe the far west of the Northeast Pastoral as well would all be a chance of seeing a, a, a severe thunderstorm on Friday. Uh, and the showers extending possibly over central and maybe even eastern districts a little bit later in the day. It'll get a bit windy too in parts, uh, particularly over the west, and uh, it does look like we'll see some elevated fire dangers, particularly over, over eastern Air Peninsula where we may see extreme fire danger. Uh, and... Um, 
generally conditions probably a little bit warmer than those of today as the northeasterly to northerly winds continue to bring warmer air down from the north. On, uh, on Saturday, that front will move across central and eastern parts uh, uh, and we'll see windy conditions generally over most places uh, in the northerlies ahead of the change and in the westerlies following the change. Um, like uh, uh, Friday, still a chance of some severe thunderstorms uh, about parts of the agricultural area, also in the far north with uh, gusty winds, some locally heavy rainfall and some uh, 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 possibly some hail as, as well as those uh, those storms move across. So uh, a, a, a return to sort of um, wet, uh, windy conditions on the uh, and possibly stormy conditions over over most of the agricultural area on Saturday, uh, and then a, a, a burst of colder air coming up from the southwest uh, on Sunday and Monday. So a chance of some small hail around the place. Windy conditions continuing on Sunday, but easing on Monday. Uh, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, the showers mostly over the southern agricultural area, but mostly clearing by Wednesday evening, I think, before we start to see a bit of uh, bit of weather redevelop from the west uh, later on Thursday. Uh, as far as the rainfall totals go for that period out to uh, the end of Monday, generally uh, most of that rainfall over the agricultural area at least will be uh, um, later Friday and Saturday, but continuing into Sunday. Uh, generally looking at the order of 10 to 30 millimetres over the agricultural area, Air Peninsula and the West Coast districts, uh, also into the far south of the pastoral uh, districts and the far south of the Flinders district too. 2 to 10 millimetres over the remainder of the Flinders and pastoral districts and we could see some locally high, heavier falls of 30 to 50 millimetres about the Mount Lofty Ranges uh, and more generally with thunderstorms. So some more rainfall on the way. Not sure that it's really what people are looking for now, uh, Cassie. No, we need some uh, some dry time to get this crop off and just let uh, people who are struggling with the electricity situation, the storms in particular, are also causing a bit of grief. But uh, thank you for the forecast at least, Simon Timkey. Thanks, thanks, Cassie. That was Simon Timkey from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western is going to be mostly sunny tomorrow. Overnight, it's getting down to 8 to 13 degrees, but the daytime temperatures are going to get up to the mid to high 20s. The lower western, also mostly sunny. Overnight, again down to 6 to 10, but daytime temperatures reaching the mid-20s. I'm Cassie Huff. We've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company this afternoon. Now, when you import something, you might think about the the ship that it comes on or perhaps the workers required to load and unload the products, but tugboats might not be front of mind when it comes to the process, but they are a crucial part. And tugboat crews in 17 Australian ports are going to today learn if they're going to be locked out from their workplaces as of tomorrow. Already we're, we're starting to see, ahead of the lockout, we're starting to see some potential disruption in the movement of vessels uh, to and from Australian ports, which is devastating really because uh, clearly in the lead up to Christmas, importers are still having product coming into the country for Christmas and the new year. That will be disrupted uh, and also our exports. 
More on the tugboat situation soon. And it's certainly not business as usual for South Australian grape growers either. I'll have more on how they're coping with the, the season's challenges as well as the, the marketplace challenges as well. That's all coming up in the next half hour. But first, to news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, Australia's unemployment rate has fallen back to 3.4%, defying economists' expectations of an increase from 35 to 3.6%. The Bureau of Statistics says that about 32,000 jobs are added to the economy in October, leaving the jobless rate near a half-century low. The state government will provide an update within the next few hours on the latest estimates of the looming Riverland floods. It's also finalising several measures to help the region, with the Premier Peter Malinowskis to travel there next week to announce support package deals. The government has also clarified sandbag supplies, saying that there are 300,000 already in the Riverland, with 200,000 to arrive in two weeks, followed by another 500,000. And some South Australians will be without power until the weekend, more than a week after connections were cut to thousands across the state. More than 160,000 people were left without power after wild storms swept across the state on Saturday. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, between a downturn in red grape prices in particular and this continued wet weather, it's been a tough time for the state's grape growers. Multiple La Nina events have resulted in damage and created disease pressure in vineyards across the state. Eliza Berlage has this story. Pushing through recent mud in his tractor has been enough of a struggle, but second-generation wine grape grower John Catusis says he's trying not to get bogged down by disease and market pressure as well. Oh, it just hasn't stopped raining. It's been full on with rain and hail, floods happening in the Riverland. So it's just been a very, very wet season so far. As you can see here, it's, um, <laughs> we're pretty much in mud, and it's uh, it's yeah, it's been a super wet season. There's quite a bit of mud on the ground at the moment. I know I'm slipping and sliding in my boots. I imagine it's not quite so easy to get in here into your vineyards um, on your feet or with a tractor at the moment? It's absolutely impossible. Um, We've been trying doing a lot of tractor work and just getting in in the farm has just been crazy. You know, you just can't get in, you just get bogged basically. Um, It's starting to dry up slowly now, which is great, but we really need to get into the farms and start spraying our organic neosulfurs and coppers so uh, to avoid any diseases basically. So it's been a really challenging moment. He says his family, who've grown grapes in Berry for more than 40 years, are trying to diversify the variety of grapes they grow while adapting their practices to deal with climate change. We're slashing a lot of the grasses back now, so no retro-hoeing, because that causes a lot more mud. So keeping the grass there and keeping it there for us actually allows the ground to be a lot more solid and not so muddy. So we're implementing those um, strategies at the moment, and that's actually helping quite a bit, rather than in retro-hoeing and making it you know, a lot more worse and more muddier. Uh, you spoke about getting literally bogged in your tractor before, John, um, yes. with all this mud and rain around. Yeah. But growers in the Riverland are also dealing with uh, vintage 2023 and, and a lot of stress around what they'll do with grapes, with a surplus of Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon grapes uh, next year. How have you been feeling with that? And are you you know, able to access any uh, financial or, or mental health support there? Uh- there are a lot of farmers that are going to suffer from this and there's going to be a lot of mental health stress and a lot of mental um, you know, health issues arising from this because people are going to be put in a really you know, bad financial position. And for us, we're in the same boat. So we're still awaiting to see what, what financial assistance is required and what is available to us at this stage. Berry grape grower John Gattuso is speaking. 
While unseasonal weather is raising the risk of diseases like downy mildew, CCW Cooperative Viticulturist Ashley Lippman says preventing disease is also increasing costs for growers at a time when margins are already tight. Particularly for Remark and Loxton, we've had the record amount of rainfall for October in recording history. So we have had a number of downy mildew infection events in the Riverland and I can really only just talk from a CCW perspective but I would say generally in the main our growers have really responded well to monitoring for the disease in the first place and taking appropriate controls and I'd say that at the moment whilst flowering is our biggest threat time the overwhelming majority of our growers in quite a strong position when it comes to that disease. Have you got any idea of how widespread across the region and maybe, you know, roughly a proportion of where and how many growers have been affected by some of these diseases? Oh, it's pretty much widespread in the Riverland. Maybe downy mildew has been a, a lesser uh, threat down sort of wakery west of Riverland, but it's, a, it's generally bubbling around through the district. Yeah, so you're saying that the growers have been responding quite well to this challenge which comes on top of other pressures including growers working out the best course of action for vintage 2023 with the red wine grape oversupply. The red grape thing is is one thing that's aside from perhaps supplying the, the white grapes. I think our biggest threat, the 600 pound gorilla that sits in the corner of the room, for disease is still powdery mildew. That's the disease that creeps along and we need to remain vigilant for that. But uh, growers are constantly aware of the, the cost pressures. So really, for growers intending to still supply grapes to, to bury estates, prevention is still our probably best method, our cheapest method, rather than having to try and chase the disease come Christmas time. Mr Lippman says CCW has been hosting an officer from Rural Business Support to offer counselling to Riverland growers. And we just looked at trialling the the option of of having uh, one of their officers, Lloyd Wright, um, being based here over the last month and that's been taken up quite well by some of our growers and it's a confidential and, and private service between Rural Business Support and that CCW grower but I understand that uh, those growers who have been involved with the process have has been very valuable for them. Rural Business Support's Chief Executive Brett Smith says it's important people reach out for advice as early as possible to put themselves in the best position. The key thing about dealing with our organisation is that it's important to act now. It's important to make those decisions that are going to make a difference in terms of what's ahead of us and those decisions about whether to produce or not to produce or drop the grapes or move towards other strategies to secure the financial soundness of the business moving forward. Rural Business Support Chief Executive Brett Smith ending that story from Eliza Berlage. And growers can contact Rural Business Support on 1800 836 211 to speak to a financial counsellor for assistance because it is a pretty tough time out there for South Australia's grape growers. So uh, any support, I'm sure, would be welcome and do, do reach out if you need it. Now moving to the uh, ports where a lot is riding on a meeting at the Fair Work Commission today. Three unions involved in port operations have suspended protected action in protected industrial action and are sitting down with the country's largest tugboat operator, Spitzer, to see if they can resolve their differences. If not, Spitzer says it will lock out the workers from tomorrow, effectively shutting many of the nation's ports. Neil Chambers, director of the Container Transport Alliance Australia, told David Courtin the issue is already causing major disruptions to trade. 
the unions overnight have suspended their uh, protected industrial action, which they're uh, allowed to undertake under the, the, the current Fair Work Act. Um, so, but they've suspended that action. Um, Spitzer, as the towage operator, has continued to say that the lockout of their workforce will continue from midday on Friday. But I suspect, uh, and I, we hope, um, that the hearing of the Fair Work Commission will bring the parties together, terminate the protected action, uh, meaning that Switzer um, has no need really then to lock out its workforce and hopefully heads will prevail uh, with the Fair Work Commission and they'll be asked to uh, enter into further negotiations on their enterprise agreement. Now, is that a major step, termination of a dispute? Look, this occurred uh, in some of the disputes which were occurring on the waterfront with the container terminals uh, last year. Um, it, it, was, it came to a head within the Fair Work Commission and uh, the protected in industrial action was, was put aside and, and ordered not to occur for, for a period of months so that the parties could have some clear air with the assistance of the Fair Work Commission to, to reach a, a final agreement. And, and in the case of the, the container stevedores at that time, um, that's what occurred. So you, you would hope that a, a similar action's taken here um, so we can get the parties back to the negotiating table and to finalise an agreement, which has taken um, taken almost three years to, to complete. We'll look at that in just a sec. But if, if that doesn't happen today and the, the lockout uh, goes ahead tomorrow of all those workers... What are the implications for your industry? Well, uh, overnight, uh, several of the major ports, Fremantle uh, and and Melbourne, um, have started to their, their harbour masters and and uh, safety regulators have started to look at the situation of ships alongside or waiting to to, to come into berth, and, and to potentially have those vessels go back out to sea so that they're not. Uh, uh, caught for any lengthy period of time uh, at the berth. Um, so already we're, we're starting to see, ahead of the lockout, we're starting to see some potential disruption in the movement of vessels uh, to and from Australian ports, um, which is uh, devastating really because uh, clearly in the lead up to Christmas, um, importers are still having product coming into the country uh, for, for Christmas and the new year. Um, that will be disrupted uh, and also our exports. Um, we're well into some of the seasonal exports in Australia um, and, uh, you know, that's the last thing we need is for those exports to be disrupted and, and not meet their contractual obligations overseas uh, for the delivery of commodities. On the agriculture and commodity side, are, are there particular things there of note? Well, absolutely. Depending on parts of Australia, um, all of our seasonal uh, exports are, are going gangbusters, as they say. So whether it's hay or grain or meat or a whole range of commodities, um, we have fairly buoyant exports uh, at the moment because of the, um, the the cropping conditions and the like. So, um, you know, we the last thing we need is a major, a further major disruption on top of COVID and all the other disruptions that have occurred in the global supply chains over the last couple of years this is, is just something that we don't need what uh, advice are you giving to your members at the moment well certainly our members uh, are really captured by the process unfortunately because uh, they're, they're the people who are picking up the containers once they're discharged from uh, from the vessels on import or delivering the exports to uh, to the terminals um, 
they're, they're having, they then have to put up with uh, what we call the tsunami effect where vessels will bunch together, come alongside all together, discharge all of their cargoes and then you have this mad rush in a sense to, to, to clear cargoes away from, from, from the terminals, the, the wharf. Uh, or and is that, is that happening today? Oh, look, absolutely. And, and one of the disruptions from an export supply chain point of view is that it means that uh, more containers have to be what we call staged through transport yards. So instead of coming straight from the packing area, whether that be in a regional location or, or elsewhere, straight to the port, which is the much more optimal supply chain, uh, these, these um, export containers are having to be staged back through transport yards and elsewhere. If they're refrigerated containers, they have to be kept on power. So you, you need to find places to plug the the containers in prior to them being delivered to to the to the wharf for export. And um, so any disruption to that that supply chain uh, means additional cost and additional frustration for everybody in the landside logistics supply chain. Neil Chambers, Director of the Container Transport Alliance Australia, which represents companies involved in the land side logistics of trade, including the warehouse operators, the road and rail companies and things like that. This meeting is on this afternoon and if the issues can't be resolved, the Fair Work Commission may take the unusual step of terminating the lockout, which would end all protected action and trigger an arbitration process. So we'll keep across this. I've had a call in from Phil from Woodside. Good afternoon. Yeah, Cassie. Um, yeah, Peter Malinowskis earlier on today said that there was uh, 300,000 sandbags uh, on its way from India and if this uh, blockade goes ahead, uh, they won't get here in time for the flood. Yeah, right. So uh, they might have to get another load put on a plane, quick smart. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That sort of I just find it interesting that there's so many parts involved in this and every cog is needed to make it all flow smoothly. Exactly. One little bit falls down and we're stuffed. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see how these, uh, this action and, and the negotiations go this afternoon. Uh, it could be uh, yep. quite a busy day tomorrow trying to rearrange things. Thanks so much for your call. Cheers, Blake. That was Phil there from Woodside commenting on these uh, port operations that uh, are in negotiations at the moment. It's a quarter to one. This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser phosphate. This is basically the old inland sea. Millions and millions of years of uh, sedimentary runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea. And earning money for carbon captured in soil. I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I've put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Cassie Huff, and we've got more to come on the Country Hour. We'll be speaking with South Australia's lead ag teacher, who says it would be great to have more schools teaching the subject. But the issue, as with many subjects, is the lack of teachers. Sue Pratt started in the new role of lead ag teacher just recently, which will see her help agriculture teachers across the state. She's been travelling around South Australia to schools that are already teaching about food and fibre, but also to those that are keen to start. And Brooke Nandorf caught up with her at Cleve to find out how the new role is going. 
Oh, it's fantastic. I've really enjoyed the first few weeks. Been very busy already, hit the ground running for sure. Um, there's definitely a need there and um, a really uh, strong desire to have some help and support across the state. So it's been a really fantastic start. I'm feeling really positive about the role. So this week I've been um, in six different schools on the Air Peninsula and it's just been such a treat to see how they're operating, the, the differences between them, but the common themes as well. Um, and it's just been a real delight to see the students doing their thing in agriculture and so proud of their programs as well. So I've visited Carcultaby, Woodner, Cummins, Cleve, Kimber, Tumby Bay. And all of those have got ag programs sort of going at the moment, except for probably Tumby Bay. So are they looking at, at having an ag program in the in the school? Yeah, I think Tumby are exploring what options they can for building some food and fibre into their program. They're like every other school, they can see the benefits for kids that um, getting outdoors, getting in touch with where the food comes from is going to bring. And uh, so, yeah, they're exploring some options and, and we were able to chew over a few things together. What do you think is working well here on the Air Peninsula? Oh, uh, I think one of the real strengths is the community support for the ag programs in, in all of the schools. That's an absolutely common thread and it's been a real delight to see that because uh, not every school has that in my experience with other schools, but um, certainly the Air Peninsula communities are really right behind their schools delivering really good quality programs. And they're not just um, saying that, they're actually putting that into practice with generous donations of their time and expertise and goods as well like fertiliser and seed and things like that and and that's really invaluable for those schools to be able to make their programs as industry relevant and as engaging for the kids as they possibly can. What do you think is about locals wanting to be able to support an ag program at a school? I guess they can see that they they need the next crop of workers coming through Um, but it's also having their their work valued by the school community and for the students to be able to see that what their families are involved in is important and it's there are career opportunities there for sure and that's been um, another thing I've done while I was here is a bit of promotion around the Ag Careers Hub and uh, perhaps exposing kids' ideas to different roles that they can have in agriculture, not just being a farmer or an agronomist but that there's a whole range of opportunities and it's a really fantastic space to be working in. So I think our local communities can see that they need that next crop And if it's not reflected in their school curriculum, it can be harder for kids to imagine themselves working in those careers. You mentioned there about Tumby Bay looking at starting a program. Are there a lot of other schools around the state that are keen to get some food and fibre education into the school? Yeah, there actually are several schools and it's that's been one of the other delights of having this role is that um, there are several others that are looking to introduce ag and doing a really uh, doing it from an innovative um, background as well. So uh, a couple in the southeast that I'll be visiting visiting in a couple of weeks' time and um, some very new programs on the York Peninsula as well. Um, and a couple of city schools that are looking to expand and also, interestingly, some primary schools. So Blythe Primary School is a classic example that's introduced Ag this year as a dedicated program uh, from reception through to year six and it's been a huge success. So, Sue, obviously if there's a lot more schools wanting to get involved, something that we've spoken about before is getting more Ag teachers involved um, because we need them to run these programs. How are you finding that at the moment? Yeah, that's a big problem for us. And while it's fantastic that schools are wanting to introduce ag, it does kind of exacerbate the problem of the uh, ag teacher shortage. So we know of 11 schools that are advertising for ag teachers for next year. We've got one graduate this year. So that maths does not add up. Um, So we've got to get a bit creative about how we can get people into schools to deliver some ag programs. And um, yeah, we're working on a couple of ideas behind the scenes. So uh, hopefully that will be able to get some industry experts into classrooms with the support of a teacher 
uh, to perhaps deliver that expertise that we need because food and fibre content there's, there's some you can do no matter what your background is, but there's some that you really do need that industry experience to be able to really make it a rich experience for the kids. So there could be the opportunity or is there, there hurdles for someone that might be maybe, say, a farmer and, and looking for something um, to also do and get involved? Maybe they could come and be the ag teacher. Is, there, is that an opportunity that schools could look at? We really hope that, um, that that will be a pathway we can use. So there is a program called Teach for Australia that does allow that to happen, but there are some barriers to having that happen in every school. And so we're, we're exploring that at the moment. But if farmers are interested in supporting their school, they would always be welcome as a, as a guest speaker, for instance, or to have kids come and visit them. And that can really add to a program to see uh, the, the concepts they've been talking about in a classroom in action and in a commercial setting is really valuable. So um, if there are any agribusiness owners or farmers or anybody out there that's um, looking to support their local school, I'm sure it would be very much appreciated. And, and um, to support the teacher in delivering good content is always going to be very appreciated. School's just about to wrap up for Year 12. There's exams happening at the moment and there might be other students as well that might be looking to get into the workforce a bit earlier. But can you see this crop of students coming out of school now, you know, many moving into that agricultural field? I really hope so. Um, there are many opportunities for them and, and that's part of this Ag Careers Hub is to expose them to that, that it's not just about those narrow range of jobs. So we do hope that lots will take on. The enrolments at the university are pretty good and um, vocational courses are also really well supported and those um, internships and, and graduate pathways that companies like Elders and Nutrien are offering are really fantastic and, and uh, the third year uni students are being snapped up, I believe. I think all of them have had jobs Oh, many of them have had jobs since July ready for 2023. So they're definitely being used up. And uh, we really hope that the current crop of year 12 students will consider ag as a really good pathway to pursue. South Australian lead ag teacher Sue Pratt speaking with Brooke Nindorf there. And uh, now there are a lot of jobs in agriculture at the moment. So if you are finishing up school, there's some big opportunities there. Before we get to news, finally, the Federal Review of the Nation's Immigration System could have some big implications for agriculture as well. Unions are pushing for provisions that allow foreign workers to move if they're unhappy with their employer. There's also talk of a licensing scheme to weed out shonky labour hire companies and tax file numbers for foreign workers to protect them against underpayments. David Clawton filed this report. We want to see workers have the capacity to be able to up and go. That is, that is if you're a visa worker working in agriculture and you find yourself on a bad farm, that you can shift and change employer. That doesn't happen at the moment. That's Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union. The ability for workers to move is something the National Farmers' Federation actually supports. But Richard Shannon, Executive Officer of the NFF's Horticulture Council, says growers need some protection too. The growers and employers pay for it up front, but then it's recouped through pay. We can't have a situation where workers are leaving their sponsor, their first employer, without those costs having been recouped from them because clearly there's there's little incentive then for employers to recruit at all because they're too exposed. They can't afford to recruit from the Pacific or anywhere else if there's a risk that those workers will leave uh, before they've had an opportunity to reclaim those costs of, of you know, flights and, and other things. The AWU says that's not fair on workers or accepted practice elsewhere. Every other industry pays for those workers to come over. In agriculture, workers have their flights deducted. They have deductions taken out for accommodation, deductions for transport, for water, for PPE. 
agricultural workers in this country are treated like second-class citizens. And so I think if we're going to have a deep dive into this, we've got to have a look to say, well, what happens if you're coming over to work in construction or resources, and how does that compare to agriculture? Over in New Zealand, we know that workers have got portability, that they can up and go if they are working in an unsafe farm or a farm uh, who's not doing the right thing. Apart from the up-and-go provisions, there are some other obvious things that could change in this review. John Azarius is the former chair of the National Agricultural Workforce Strategy. He's currently a special advisor to the Federal Minister of Agriculture on workforce issues, and he's a member of the panel guiding the review of Australia's migration system. At a recent conference in Canberra, he outlined some changes that he thought would be sensible, and I asked him to explain now what they were. Regulation is what we thought was required, That's why we suggested that the Queensland uh, Act uh, regulating labour hire companies would be a good model to be uh, considered by other states as well and, of course, to be coordinated uh, by uh, Canberra, the same way that Canberra uh, coordinates the OHNS legislations around the country. John Azarius has also indicated his support for a tax file number for foreign workers to improve the visibility of their hours and their pay. The recommendation is a simple one, that anybody who comes into Australia whose visa allows them to work should uh, have automatically a tax file number. This applies to every Australian citizen. Uh, It should apply to visitors from overseas who have working rights. This was a recommendation that was also made in the 2014 uh, report on robust new foundations on the review of the 457, which at the time I also had the privilege of chairing. And at the time, the government endorsed it. And I do not believe that it has been implemented. So we have two independent reviews which have endorsed that idea. The other big problem in agriculture is the illegal workforce. People who come here on tourist or other visas without a work permit, but need to work to live. They're often subject to poor pay and working conditions and they're exploited by shonky labour hire companies. Richard Shannon from the NFF thinks that's a much harder problem to resolve. I think the idea of that the simply making people apply for a tax file number will solve the problem of undocumented workers in this country is a little bit uh, naive. Can that be solved? Well, it can be, but there has to be a lot of work done on our migration system overall. We, as an industry, would, would welcome government solving the problem of undocumented workers. It is a problem, obviously, um, for those workers. They are more open to abuse and mistreatment, but also it, it skews the, the competition in our industry. It, it puts growers who are doing the right thing at a competitive disadvantage. So it's absolutely a problem we need to see solved, but it requires a massive commitment and investment from government to solve it. John Azarius hinted at one possible solution, what he calls regularisation of illegal worker status. We recommended again unanimously at the time that there should be a regularisation of their status This is obviously for uh, governments to decide whether they want to uh, go ahead with that or not. But it's, it's important not only from a humanitarian point of view, 
But it's also important from a producer point of view because a lot of these uh, illegal migrants are excellent workers. John Azarius has also identified the Ag Skills Training Program, which is operating in the cotton industry in New South Wales, as a model that other sectors could follow to rapidly upskill for key roles in agriculture, fisheries and forestry, food and logistics. The panel is due to report back to the federal government next year. David Clawton with that report. That's all we have time for on the program today. If you're listening on Analog Radio at one thirty today, you'll head to the first one-day international test between uh, one day, I should say, between Australia and England at the Adelaide Oval. If you'd like to stay with us on ABC Radio Adelaide and listen to Caroline Winter, George Schiller, and Lee Radford, you'll need to listen online or on the ABC Listen app or on digital radio. But very quickly, Caroline Winter can tell you what is on in store if you do choose to do that. Good yeah. afternoon. Hello. Hello, you definitely want to stick around. We're going to be talking about the best beaches in Australia and South Australia is right up there. There's a uh, a man doing a bit of a search right now, three weeks across the state, looking at our best beaches and I want to hear what yours are and why they're a favourite. Well, there are certainly some beauties here, so get involved. Uh, Keep listening to your ABC local radio as we approach one o'clock. Afternoons with Caroline Winter. I had the Steve Austin doll. Did it make the... Who of this era did not run around in slow motion doing that? Caroline Winter. ABC Radio South Australia. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.